we've got to achieve scale. And, and all of the, the technologies we're talking about to, to really utilize hydrogen, like we're talking about, these are proven technologies. Mm -hmm. you, know, you look at electrolyzers, they've been around since the 1940s. Uh, you look at storing uh, hydrogen salt caverns, we've been doing that since the 1980s. We've got over 1,600 miles of hydrogen pipeline in the U.S., including in major cities like Salt Lake City and Los Angeles that most people don't even realize exist. Okay. Uh, but we've got thousands of miles of pipe uh, around, and we've got gas turbines that have been running on hydrogen since the 1970s. We are here to try to explain to you what it is we do here. industry in the U.S. employs more people than Google, Apple, Facebook, and Twitter combined. The most valuable commodity I know of is information. Wouldn't you agree? Welcome into the Green Insider Podcast, powered by eRenewable. I am your host, Fred Davis, joined as always by the president and founder of eRenewable, Mr. Mike Niemer. And Mike, uh, it's it's a chilly December day here in Houston, and of course we're, we'll be joining uh, Mr. Michael Ducker from Salt Lake City, Utah, here in just a few. But uh, hey, listen, we're that much closer to the end of the year and uh, putting a bow on things. But I'm very excited about the episode we have today. Oh, I am too. You know, uh, Mr. Debishi's done a lot of things uh, within the re renewable space, particularly in hydrogen. And Michael's our first guest that's going to be able to talk about that that we've had on in our first 15 episodes. So we're excited to hear what Mitsubishi's doing and what Michael then uh, bring to our listeners education-wise. It's something no one else has provided, so we're really excited for that today. No, we certainly are. And Mike, for folks that are new to the podcast and or uh, are still finding out about eRenewable, why don't you tell the folks at home what eRenewable is all about? Yeah, Fred, at eRenewable, we help clients with their PPA and VPPA projects by using our online live auction to expedite pricing. Additionally, we help clients with the renewable energy credits, microgrids, renewable natural gas, energy master plans, and smart street light poles. If you need any help with your renewable projects, please call us at 1-866-ERENEW1. That again is 1-866-ERENEW1, where we can help you with all your renewable projects. There you have it, Mike. I appreciate that. And like I said, folks, definitely check that out. And then, of course, also you can go to the website as well, erenew.net. That's erenew.net. All right, let's without further ado, welcome to the program, Vice President for Renewable Fuels for Mitsubishi Power, Mr. Michael Ducker. And Mr. Ducker, like I said, you've been over there at Mitsubishi now for 10-plus years, and uh, you've been given a, a uh, tremendous opportunity now with the uh, group that you're leading over there, uh, with this hydrogen group that you're in charge of now, uh, Renewable Fuels in the Western region but what one of the things that really stuck out to me and what you're doing and mike alluded to it already as far as the the advances and just the work that mitsubishi's done in the renewable sector but right now you guys are a part of something that is unlike anything going on in the world right now the advanced clean energy storage project how did mitsubishi get uh you know how, how did you and Mag magnum come up come together on this and just what's been your role in the last 11 months in helping spearhead this for Mitsubishi? Yeah, that's right. So th thank you, Fred and, and Mike, and, and, and really excited to be on the podcast here today. Um, and, and as you mentioned, you, we've been doing a lot of great things uh, in the renewable space and, and certainly in the hydrogen area as well. Uh, and our most exciting project is clearly the, the Advanced Clean Energy Storage Project. So uh, this has been a development actually going on for uh, really a couple of years now. 
Uh, we've been introduced to Magnum Development, uh, like I said, a few years ago. They were developing that site uh, actually for uh, 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 fossil fuel storage. So looking at storing natural gas liquids and uh, you know, butanes, ethanes, uh, other commodities that's been done you know, really across the globe is, is uh, you know, how we store those types of fuels. What salt caverns can also store is hydrogen. <clears throat> and what got really interesting here was uh, right adjacent to the site is the Intermountain Power Agency's Intermountain Power Plant. This is a coal-fired power plant that's set to retire uh, in 2025. Uh, and the uh, Intermountain Power Agency was, uh, was looking at building a new combined cycle power plant there that could run on both natural gas and hydrogen. And so we as a company provide natural gas turbines uh, and really are, are offering hydrogen capable gas turbines going forward. So kind of long story short, uh, we saw this opportunity uh, right adjacent to the site. And we said, well, we don't want to just provide the hydrogen capable gas turbines. We really believe we can provide an end to end solution here. And so we partnered up with Magnum, knowing that they had the, the salt formation, the capability at the site right adjacent, uh, have been developing that project. In parallel, we were selected by the Intermountain Power Agency for our hydrogen-capable gas turbines. Uh, and then, as they say, the, the rest is history from there. So we've been working with uh, Magnum and working with the IPA to, to provide both the uh, hydrogen production, storage, and our turbines. And what's so incredible about this is that the amount of storage that you guys are going to be able to facilitate, and obviously, you know, for folks that, that you know, and, and one of the issues with, and I, I say issues, but one of the challenges, rather, of renewable energy and the grid, and you talk about this in uh, a couple of the interviews I, I saw, is that, and, and for other folks who we've spoken with, is that, yes, in during, you know, during uh, uh, on-peak times, hey, it's great. I mean, all that energy, all the, all the wind, the solar goes into it, but it's during those off-peak times when it's still being created, but there's nowhere to hold it. There's nowhere for that to go. How is this going to help facilitate what's been one of the biggest issues for renewable energy is storing the, 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 the wind, the solar, when, again, it's the off-peak times? That's right. And so, you know, when you think about uh, – energy storage, a lot of people think about batteries and lithium-ion batteries, and for good reason, because right now that is the type of technology we need. Uh, and it's really, batteries do a great job of balancing that uh, intra-daily mismatches. Uh, you know, for those in the energy space, a lot of times we hear about the duck curve in California, and the duck curve represents in the middle of the day, we're overproducing solar, uh, and so that's where we want to charge these batteries, and at the night, um, when, you know, the sun's going down, uh, we need energy there that's available, and that's where you can discharge batteries. What's different here with hydrogen is we're actually uh, looking at storing energy, not necessarily for those intradaily imbalances, but really for the long term. So the, the, the key question becomes, what happens when I've got excess uh, renewables in, say, April, uh, when we've got great solar, we've got great wind, uh, we've got the snow melt in the Pacific Northwest, so we've got a lot of hydro, but we don't have a, a whole lot of demand. But then in August, when we've got shortages on, on, on energy, you know, how do I really shift that April into August? Uh, and that's a different technology we need than batteries. And so this is where hydrogen is really starting to play a prominent role. Um, and as we add more and more renewables to the grid, we're starting to move beyond that need for intradaily energy uh, balancing of renewables in more of that interdaily, even seasonal type of balancing of renewables. Uh, and again, that's really where the, the uh, role for hydrogen starts to come into play. And from what I've read, this uh, the ACES project is going to be able to store a thousand megawatts. I so we're looking at a thousand megawatts is is really what we think about the the power side uh, for energy storage. Uh, people usually focus more on the energy side, which is uh, it's one hundred fifty thousand megawatt hours. So just to put that in perspective, right now the entire United States 
has uh, about 1,000 megawatt hours worth of lithium-ion batteries installed across the entire U.S. So just one salt cavern can store 150 times the entire U.S. installed base of batteries. Uh, so it gives you some sense of scale and in, in, in the capability here to really do these longer duration, more seasonal uh, balancing of renewables. This is the first project of its kind, and I know just from from some of the things you've said in the past is that, and you know, with with hydrogen, it's always been all right. This is the first time we've seen really a, a not a, I won't say a proliferation, but we've seen more green hydrogen, which is what you guys are doing. Uh, gray hydrogen, as they call it, is what we've seen in the past. But how do we get? To where I mean, obviously we can't have uh, you know we can't have the Aces projects everywhere. But what does this mean as far as from the technology standpoint to where we can see it again on a smaller scale, and we'll we'll start to see more production of green hydrogen and not just in the Aces project. Yeah, and it's a great question. So I mean, I think what we think about here or how we see this progression moving is first and foremost we've got to achieve scale, and in all of the the technologies we're talking about to to really utilize hydrogen, like we're talking about. These are proven technologies. Mm -hmm. You know, you look at electrolyzers, they've been around since the 1940s. Uh, You look at storing uh, hydrogen salt caverns, we've been doing that since the 1980s. We've got over 1,600 miles of hydrogen pipeline in the U.S., including in major cities like Salt Lake City and Los Angeles that most people don't even realize exist. Uh, But we've got thousands of miles of pipe uh, around, and we've got gas turbines that have been running on hydrogen since the 1970s. Mitsubishi alone has over three and a half million operating hours on hydrogen. So everything I just mentioned there uh, shows that these technologies are proven. They've been around. They're commercially mature. What's different is just really starting to achieve meaningful scale uh, in in applying these in in, uh, market applications that that previously did not exist. And so like you just talked about, Fred, this idea of uh, of energy storage and really vast energy storage to help integrate um, the unprecedented amount of renewables that we're adding to the grid and all of that is an effort to uh, to reduce our carbon emissions and achieve really deeper decarbonization across sectors. So, and all of that said, what does that mean? Uh, when we look at achieving scale today, we're really scaling commercially mature technologies to help get that initial cost down moving forward. Uh, and then again, over time, we can expect to see continued cost down progress such that some of these smaller applications uh, or sites that maybe don't have access to low-cost storage can benefit from all the gains that we've made uh, in these industries and areas where we were able to achieve that initial scale. One last thing on the ACES project. This, this, uh, This is supposed to kick online. You guys are in, what, phase one of this project, if I'm not mistaken, now, as far as the construction of it? We're looking at multiple stages, but right now we're targeting 2025, uh, a commercial online date for the facility. Okay. And, and I guess my question is this. So once this thing kicks off, and again, Mitsubishi's no stranger to, to, to the renewable game, do you see, because again, we all know the battery storage and just storage of, of renewables, and like you said, the balancing of renewables is, is one of the biggest issues faced right now with renewables. Do you see you, uh, Mitsubishi getting into, and this is where you come in, doing this on a smaller scale in different places where we're seeing maybe in a Kansas and a Texas on the East coast, is this kind of the, like you said, is this kind of going to set the blueprint for us seeing more uh, uh, hydrogen storage down the line? Absolutely. And in fact, we already do have customers in a lot of the areas you just mentioned, we've got uh, customers in the Northeast in the Southeast and the Gulf coast and the Midwest uh, who also want to look at this. And that's one of the best uh, attributes I'd say of hydrogen is its scalability and so what we can do in some of these projects who maybe initially can achieve scale, 
we could look at how do we evolve over time. And so to give an example, if we look at a power plant in the U.S. Northeast, the Northeast right now does not have the same type of renewables penetration like California. But we know in the next 10, 15, 20 years, they will. So how do we develop infrastructure in the Northeast, recognizing that I don't need long duration seasonal shifting today, but in 15, 20 years, I will. And how do I start building infrastructure today to ensure that I don't have stranded assets and ensure that, you know, again, we're doing things as most cost effectively and reliably as we can. And it's really what we're partnering with our customers to do that. So what we see is opportunities in the near term to do small amounts of hydrogen, do small amounts of integration today, just because in the Northeast, for instance, the market doesn't demand the, the type of integration like we have at West. But over time, making sure that we've built these facilities, uh, have the vision in the region so that when the renewable penetration is large enough, we can cost effectively um, uh, uh, integrate the renewables as opposed to just waiting 15, 20 years uh, and then try to s solve the problem then. So, so again, this is really one of the great opportunities with hydrogen is to do just that. You know, we've seen in the last, what, 10 or 12 or 15 years how the cost of solar has gone down complete, gone down significantly, right? To make it much more affordable, not so dependent on subsidies, so on and so forth. Do you see, I know you hope, but do you see the cost of hydrogen following that same scale down in the course of 10 to 15 years? Yes, absolutely. We, we, we see that same type of trajectory. And Mike, that's a great example is, is looking at the solar industry. And, you know, in, in 2005 type of time frame, I was at the Department of Energy. And, you know, at that time, we're looking at levelized cost of electricity for solar upwards of $1,000 a megawatt hour. And yet here we stand today uh, in some regions, we can actually be sub $20 a megawatt hour. Uh, on the hydrogen side, we have to understand we are just scraping the start of, uh, of the supply chain and the manufacturing capabilities. To put it again into perspective, the entire global shipments of electrolyzers in 2018 was about 120 megawatts, 120 megawatts. And our one project, we're talking about being over a gigawatt. And there's multiple projects across the globe that are looking at using a supply chain. So there's tons of low-hanging fruit out there that don't require you know, technology advancements or, or, or game changers in the electrolysis industry. It's very you know, simple blocking tackling that we do in the manufacturing space. It's automation. It's you know, looking at supply chain, you know, upstream and downstream of what you're doing. There's so much opportunity to reduce costs today. Uh, and then you take on the the idea of, of these newer innovations, right? So PEM electrolyzers and solid oxide electrolyzer cells, these newer technologies that could come into play, those will additionally get, you know, uh, able to help bring down the cost over time. So there's definitely line of sight to achieving the same type of cost downs uh, like we saw uh, as, as the solar industry really took off in the early 2000s. Mike, why is it you think, and we know hydrogen has been around for, like as you alluded to, it's been around forever and a day, but why do we think that the maturation of the green hydrogen market has taken so long? Um, it, it's really, again, comes down to what are the market signals and needs for green hydrogen? And, and green hydrogen is a function of us as a society really committing to decarbonization. Okay. And so if you look at you know early 2000s when, uh, again, I mentioned I was at the Department of Energy and during the Bush administration, you know, we were just starting to talk about the hydrogen economy. But in the early 2000s, we didn't have targets for 100% decarbonization, not just in the power sector, but economy-wide. We didn't have major corporations saying they refused to buy uh, any carbon-emitting resources. We didn't have financial investors out there who were saying, I'm so committed to ESG type of investments that I refuse to put any of my you know, infrastructure funds 
uh, into projects that that don't have some means of achieving you know uh, environmental societal benefits. So just fundamentally, the market today is different than it was 15, 20 years ago. And that's bring it back to what's important here. We're looking to use hydrogen to help solve the issues of decarbonization. We're not just, you know, we're not trying to build hydrogen infrastructure for the, sh- for the sake of building it. Mm-hmm. We are looking at hydrogen helping support integrate, at least in the power sector, renewables, which are being built as a uh, objective to reduce carbon emissions, which is all part of a strategy to, of course, mitigate the impacts of climate change. So that's the whole stream there. And as you look at addressing each one of those, again, that's where hydrogen starts to, to come into play. You've been in your role now since February of, of uh, this year. When the pandemic hit, talk a little bit about the difference in its effect on the energy market versus what went down back during the Great Recession. And you taking this job over in February 2020. I mean, yeah, we'd, we'd heard whispers about coronavirus, but nobody in their right mind thought that this thing was going to have the impact. I mean, maybe not everybody did, thought it was going to have the impact. What, what did Mitsubishi, what, what was kind of your, uh, uh, how, how did your team pivot, as everybody likes to call it, in 2020 once the corona hit? And how has it compared to what you saw when you were in the government during the recession of 2008-2009? You know, here's one of the most important things about our industry is uh, we absolutely always need to have the lights on. And, you know, even talking about the coronavirus, too, uh, of course, the medical industry is, is paramount to, to helping solve these issues. But if hospitals and if the industry doesn't have energy, uh, clearly it becomes a challenge there. And so, I think what we've seen thus far from our customers and from the market is uh, very clearly still a, a strong need in, in understanding to support uh, uh, energy objectives and to make sure we're providing reliable, affordable energy um, you know, across markets. I think what we've seen here, too, is an opportunity in you know, a post-COVID environment uh, of investing in, in trying to support economic booms uh, you know, across, uh, across sectors and, and certainly looking at investments in clean energy represent one of those opportunities to bring in new jobs, to update infrastructure. We saw a lot of that, you know, as you mentioned, in, in the 2009 timeframe with the uh, American Recovery and Reinvestment Act, uh, ARA. You know, a lot of those investments that happened in that time uh, were around energy. And what we'd end up seeing was, you know, pretty much big booms in investments. That's where we started seeing the big change into natural gas combined cycle units, along with renewables that were helping to reduce uh, carbon emissions. And, you know, what we saw there was jobs. We saw a reduction in, you know, electricity costs. Uh, and so I think we, we see that same type of opportunity for investment today. Um, and so going back to your question, too, you know, how did it really impact us? What I'd say largely is uh, almost without a beat. You know, we really you know, didn't skip without a beat here. I mean, the our customers, our uh, opportunities actually only continue to grow right now, uh, thankfully. And, and, you know, we're uh, very much excited to continue to work. Uh, with our customers here to support these these efforts. You know, Michael, um, I want to go back a little bit to where you were talking about your CO2 projects and everything out in California and out west. Do, do you guys, are you involved in the Reggie market and trading all the wrecks and everything that, that go along with all those uh, clean energies out in California? Uh, no, in short, we do uh, we do not trade on, on the Reggie markets, but certainly uh, those markets do represent other opportunities in in, in market signals for our customers uh, to um, you know support uh, to, to again apply really a price to carbon and, and you know, what that means for their investments and how they integrate. But but we at least as a company are not uh, uh, directly involved in those markets. Okay, so do you all trade the over the counter rec markets at all, or is it all just? 
customer back-to-back kind of business? Again, we, we at least as a company, are not trading uh, over the counter. And the recs are a great question you bring up here. So at least like our advanced clean energy storage project, you know, these are one of the areas that we're really working with regulators and uh, policymakers on today. Uh, j- just to put in perspective, so if I think about hydrogen as an energy storage asset, how are markets structured today? Well, most markets uh, allow you to, 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 again, really qualify like a battery in that you're going to take excess renewables, uh, you're going to use that to charge a system, and then you're going to provide that energy back to the grid. One of the challenges right now that we're seeing is what happens if I want to take and rather than putting that hydrogen back to the grid via gas turbine, what if I want to put that to a, a long haul uh, transport car, you know, a truck? What if I want to use that in a heavy industrial customer who wants to decarbonize? Well, that's actually then treated like a load. <clears throat> so the, the rates I pay as an entity looking to use my system like a battery to support grid services versus what do I pay if I'm going to supply an end user like a transportation sector customer, uh, I, I may be paying two different rates. And, and really, one of the things we're going to have to solve here, too, with regulators and policymakers is uh, is that balance between how much are you leaning on the grid to supply um, energy for ultimate end users, or can electrolyzers in this hydrogen production really have a dual benefit in that you can run these systems when the grid is is challenged? Again, we're overproducing renewables, and then I use that energy to supply, say, the transportation sector. Well, that's a different model. And so, you know, it really, we should be paying different rates and, and shouldn't be treated just like an end user if that's the, the model and scenario I come uh, bring to the table. Um, so again, a long way to say there's, we're really just at the forefront now of policy and, and tariffs and different regulatory constructs that need to be thought through if we all bring it back to that end goal is achieving deep decarbonization reliably and affordably. If that's our goals, we really need to relook at, at a lot of our market constructs uh, to achieve those ends. We've talked a lot. We've talked a lot about hydro, hydrogen, and again, you're you're dealing with renewable fuels. What what else is uh, Mitsubishi dabbling in right now, and that uh, you guys, whether it's projects or or things that you guys have going on, or that you're looking forward to in 2021, that you're looking to get a kickstart or, or continue to build upon. You know, one of the most exciting things I've seen our company transition over the roughly decade I've been here is really from just a pure gas turbine original equipment manufacturer to truly a solutions provider. And when you look at what we're offering today, um, we're offering lithium-ion battery integrated solutions. And so we, we do not just hydrogen energy storage, we also are selling lithium-ion battery storage solutions. We have a development team actually in, in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, uh, a solar development company that's uh, targeted to, uh, again, bring renewable energy to the grid. We have a joint venture with Vestas with offshore wind. and so. Um, you know, as we look at all these different products too, a lot of what we've been offering customers is not just a, you know, here's the widget, are you interested or not? It's really trying to work collaboratively with our customers of what are you trying to solve? What's the best integration of different technologies? And so we've had projects actually, Fred, where we've offered solar development, we've offered lithium ion batteries, we've offered hydrogen uh, storage and, and production, as well as the gas turbine in one bid. And so it's not, you know, just... Uh, again, discrete bids or, or products, we've tried to bring the full solution together and offer that to the customers. And it's really different today, uh, as I said, than where we were maybe a decade ago. Uh, and that's some of the exciting things that we've been doing here beyond just just hydrogen itself. So you guys, you've essentially tackled the renewable energy project from soup to nuts in literally every capacity. 
That, that's right. And, and again, it, it drives back to that, that same kind of core tenant of how do we provide the most affordable, reliable uh, solutions to our customers to help combat climate change. Mm-hmm. And the fact of the matter is you cannot do that with solar alone. You cannot do that with batteries alone. You cannot do that with gas turbines alone. We've really seen and embraced that it is an all the above uh, requirement. And as such, that's reflected in our offerings. Yeah, so you know, what's one of the most exciting things I've seen with Mitsubishi in the past decade since I've been here is we've gone beyond just being a gas turbine and, and equipment manufacturer to, to really an end-to-end solutions provider. And the fact that matters, what we've seen with our customers is they need an all-the-above solution. You know, they when we look at addressing climate change and, and providing affordable, reliable energy, we can't just do that with solar alone. We can't just do that with, with battery storage alone. We can't just do it with gas turbines alone. It really requires all those technologies coming together to provide affordable, reliable means to decarbonize and, and, and combat climate change. And so really, we have a company has pivoted to providing those solutions. Uh, and in fact, we've had, like I said, uh, uh, customers where we've offered all those in one package as opposed to just, uh, you know, looking to provide one at a time. You talked about providing uh, lithium-ion battery storage solutions. Where are, are you guys? Are you guys creating the batteries? Are you giving the new technology? Where do you stand on that? Because I know from the host of folks we've spoken to, that's kind of the next frontier uh, in this renewable puzzle, if you will. Yeah. So we actually, uh, prior to 2014, Mitsubishi used to manufacture lithium-ion cells. Uh, ultimately, though, we were focused on the power industry, and what we've seen materialize is. Uh, the cost downs in batteries have been achieved thanks due to consumer electronics mm-hmm. uh, as well as uh, for uh, uh, for the vehicle industry. Uh, and so we really just couldn't compete. So we sold that business in 2014. But although we sold the manufacturing capability, that know-how to to uh, uh, integrate and package lithium-ion products was was retained. And so what we offer today is really integrated solutions where we're agnostic to the OEM. So, I mean, we are using different suppliers of the lithium-ion cells. Uh, but we'll package the power conditioning system and the containers and the uh, uh, battery management systems with the, uh, of course, lithium-ion cells. Uh, and that is what we're offering customers here today. You mentioned something earlier, and, and I've seen you talk about this a couple other times, too, in, in a couple of your other interviews about, um, you know, policy. And you, like I said, you mentioned earlier, too, about, um, you know, policy kind of re, not necessarily reconsidering but taking a deep dive into it right uh as far as if we're going to go if we're going to decarbonize it you know there's we got to take a deeper look at this um we had a gentleman on last week heim lubin talking about the role that government can play you've been in you've worked for the government you work for the department of energy he said one of the issues facing the renewable sector is from a confidence level aspect of it is you know, if the government were to make a policy change much in the same way that they've allowed for, like, say, a depletion allowance in the oil and gas business, and that if they were to do something like that for the renewable sector, okay, or some sort of caveat like that, that that would be a major game changer for the renewable industry. Do you think that the government has done enough? Uh, I mean, I, we know that they, they've encouraged it and they're, they're taking steps and we've seen incentives and what have you, but has government done enough to, to, to spur uh, renewable energy growth? growth. And now that we've got President-elect Biden, what do you see on the horizon? And do you see that caveat, that magic bullet, if you will, a depletion-like allowance that would be a game changer for the renewable sector? Yeah, so I I continue to go back to kind of the the main points trying to make here is ultimately first, what are we trying to solve? And if the goal is deeper decarbonization, that's the first target is is we align that, yes, we want to achieve uh, affordable, reliable energy while also mitigating the impacts of climate change. If that's the goal number one, 
then I think from there, we really need to look at market constructs and policies that help push you know, that, that end means. And so that doesn't mean necessarily picking one technology or, or one type of uh, um, you know, energy solution to meet it. It goes back to, again, a lot of what I said, it isn't all the above need. And so how do we look at uh, uh, the way utilities do their long-term resource planning? How do we look at how uh, you know, ultimate end users procure their energy uh, and how do we have all this set up such that we can ensure the right policies and frameworks are in place? Um, so just as a couple examples, you know, going back again, drawing my days at DOE, the whole public-private partnership really does bring a lot to the table. And so when you're really just trying to get some of these initial projects off the ground where we're at the right technology readiness level, uh, we just you know, need that kind of initial scale. The ability to do the public-private partnership where, you know, again, private industry puts in a certain amount, uh, the government puts in a certain amount. That can do a whole host of things to achieve your initial you know, cost downs and scaling of an industry. And from there, again, just having the right policies in place such that you know, the, the continued investments are, are made. Um, you know, certainly, too, we do look at certain technologies and areas that, that do require maybe a bit more pushes. And you know, those are the earlier stage developments. Um, but but you know, ultimately, right now, it goes back to where is hydrogen today? And like I keep saying, we are... Uh, Technologies are commercially mature and ready to be deployed. It's a matter of having the right market incentives and mechanisms out there to get those deployed. And so that's where we are trying to work with you know, the public sector here to help uh, um, really bring these technologies into the market uh, cost effectively and, and, and to support these end goals. So are you, I mean, are you encouraged by the steps that have been taken? And, and obviously, like I said, with the new administration, are you, are you encouraged by and, and privately optimistic that things are going to take a step forward with deeper looks at policy and it will have more of a, you know, again, have a bigger discussion about what, what you, you know, as you mentioned, what's trying to be done and get into the specifics of what is the ultimate goal in addition to decarbonization, how we attain it. Sure. You know, I think there's been a lot said on, on the campaign trail in general that, that uh, gives one hope that, you know, what we're, what we'll be encountering, uh, you know, in the future here, will will certainly provide more market mechanisms and opportunities uh, to spur clean energy development. I think the great news, though, is beyond the politics and whoever's in office, whether it's the president or who's sitting in Congress, uh, the lines are already drawn. Yeah. You know, states and our customers and the ultimate customers are moving down this path, irrespective of who's in power and who's you know, driving policy. Policy is really just a matter, I think, of the time scale. Does it happen quicker or longer? But, you know, again, the, the path, at least in our minds, already laid out. It's, it's happening. It's more of just, you know, can government help expedite some of these things moving forward? And certainly, again, we, we've seen some, uh, I think, things to be optimistic about that those timelines could move forward here uh, forthcoming. But at the end of the day, you know, we as a company have invested. We like to say we make century long bets. You know, we haven't been around as long as we have uh, by by playing the short game. And so, you know, we're confident as an entity that these, uh, you know, this is where the market's moving. And that's where we're going to continue to invest our time and resources to support. I was going to ask you, too, about renewable natural gas. And, and uh, I know you mentioned a little bit about biodiesel. Where Again, is that something that Mitsubishi's looking at as far as getting involved with? Or where, where do you guys stand as far as that side of the renewable fuel side? Yeah, I mean, you know, renewable natural gas, well, there's two. I've heard renewable natural gas referred in, in two different ways. There's uh, that derived by, you know, biogas and landfill gas. And, and, and that's, you know, oftentimes referred as renewable natural gas. The other way is I've heard it referred to as synthetic Mm-hmm. renewable natural gas, which is we take hydrogen, applied methanation process, uh, and actually then, sorry, excuse me, we take green hydrogen, applied methanation process, and then we have uh, you know, really 
carbon-free renewable natural gas. Um, you know, really, it, it all comes down to a function of, of, uh, of course, costs. You yeah, know, what, exactly. What's most cost-effective? Uh, what we see, the benefits of renewable natural gas, or at least in this case, what I'm referring to as synthetic natural gas, we save on some of the pipeline costs and some of the, you know, those infrastructure costs, but we need ways to actually capture the CO2 um, to, to have this be a CO2-free process. Um, you know, there, there's also still the, the green hydrogen infrastructure to be necessary. Um, but, you know, at the end of the day, again, we're, we're kind of technology agnostic in that sense. And so if our customers or the markets move uh, and drive us towards that front, we would you know happily embrace and pursue. Right now, we just tend to see the opportunities, at least in the U.S., driven more towards uh, m- you know momentum around green hydrogen and the integration there with with renewables. Get you out of here with this. Obviously, the Aces project is going to continue to to roll along in 2021. Uh, we obviously the vaccine rolled out today. Uh, we'd like to think that things will return to some semblance of normalcy in 2021. What's uh, Michael Ducker, VP of Renewable Fuels for Mitsubishi? Kind of what's your outlook on 2021, and what else do you guys have on the horizon for uh, you know just on on your docket aside from the Aces project? Yeah, so at least on on the hydrogen front, uh, we certainly have a lot more announcements to be making here. Uh, I mentioned some of the exciting projects we've got in the Gulf Coast and Northeast. We've got several others that are going to be unveiled here in, in 2021. <clears throat> I think we see a lot of great opportunities working beyond the power sector, too. You know, we've been talking with a lot of different uh, entities outside of power. That's one of the great things with hydrogen here, too, is it's really causing these different industries to collaborate. You know, how does transportation work with power? Um, and I, I almost want to go back, if you don't mind, to sure. the analogy made o- earlier is uh, we saw lithium-ion batteries really benefit in consumer electronics and the transportation sector driving cost downs such that now today the power industry is reaping those benefits. Mm-hmm. The exact opposite I think is going to happen for hydrogen in that the power industry is going to be what causes the scale and cost down impacts for hydrogen. And then transportation sector and other sectors are really going to benefit from those cost downs. Uh, but at the end of the day, the great news is we get to partner with those entities and try to work through those bigger visions. And so you certainly look to see more, you know, those types of announcements coming in 2021 uh, of these cross-sectoral um, uh, partnerships uh, to really drive down and, and reduce the cost of hydrogen. Um, and hopefully the only thing for 2021, uh, you know, getting a little more uh, time myself, I can just say in, in 2020, it's been, uh, that, that's the best part of this job and probably the worst part too, is uh, we've, uh, we've been just um, v- very blessed with the amount of work and uh, interest here in hydrogen and uh, so, uh, so it makes for some long nights and, and weekends here. And so uh, we're, we're working to staff up within our companies, too. And so I think that's another point that uh, we'll be hiring a lot more heads. And so be, uh, stay tuned for that as we're looking to, to build up our team here uh, and hopefully give me some of my nights and weekends back. Great, Michael. Thank you so much. That, that insight's just valuable and, uh, and very educational. And the, you uh, delivered what we hope. as great conversation that you just gave us there and that. Uh, and you taught us a lot of stuff we didn't know before. Fred? There you go. Well, Mike, I tell you what, my man, you have been absolutely fantastic, and uh, you have put an absolute clinic on for the folks at home uh, about hydrogen and the good stuff that you guys are doing, and just, again, the, the, the progress that's being made. And uh, this thing is, I mean, it, it's a major player now uh, in, in, in the renewable front, correct? Yep, that's right. All right, my man. Well, listen, get, get some of them folks hired. And uh, like I said, if, 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 if there's anything we can do on the, in, here in Houston to help you guys out, uh, funnel some good talent your way, let us know. Mike and I will certainly do that. So that way uh, our boy Michael Duggan can get some sleep at night. <laughs> That'd be great. Thanks a lot, Fred and, and Mike. It was an absolute pleasure here talking with you guys today.
Thank you once again to Michael Ducker, Vice President of Renewables over at Mitsubishi Power. It's amazing the ACES project they've got going on with the Magnum Group and what that ACES project is going to look like in 2025 and its capability for green hydrogen and what that means for green hydrogen in the renewable space. And We certainly learned a lot about that today. So thank you once again to Michael Ducker. Looking forward to episode number 17 with Sarah Ryan, Manager of Research and Analytics and Energy at the Environmental Defense Fund. She'll be talking about electrical vehicles and, of course, we'd be remiss if we didn't ask her a question or two about what's going on over at Tesla and the progress that's being made over in China and what that means over here in the United States and just where the technology in electrical vehicles is at. And ultimately, what does that mean for the grid as well? But we've got a lot to get to with Sarah, so definitely stay tuned for that episode 17. We hope you enjoyed episode 16 as well with Michael Ducker. Don't forget, you can catch all of the Green Insider podcasts over at Apple iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we ask you, A, that you subscribe. And if you listen to Apple iTunes, please, please, please leave us a five-star rating because we promise you, you knew more about renewables after you left than before you stopped by. And that's what we try to do here at the Green Insider Podcast. So for my man, Mr. Mike Niemer, I am Fred Davis. This has been the Green Insider Podcast powered by eRenewable. We make going green easier. Happy holidays. God bless. <music>